0: Welcome to Foolish Voices, a Company of Fools podcast. Company of Fools is a professional theater company based in Sun Valley, Idaho, and is a proud part of the Sun Valley Museum of Art. More information can be found online at svmoa.org. Welcome to Foolish Voices. I'm Scott Palmer, producing artistic director of Company of Fools, and on this show we talk to a wide range of theater artists and academics both here in Sun Valley and all across the world about how the global health crisis is impacting their work, about their creative lives and about their hopes for the future of our art form. Please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at svmoa.org. In this episode, I am delighted to be speaking with the academically delightful Daniel Pollock Pelsner. Daniel is the Ronnie LeCruc Chair in Shakespeare Studies at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and his articles about Shakespeare and contemporary culture have appeared recently and multiply in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. He is the scholar in residence at the Portland Shakespeare Project, and he lectures frequently at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. He met his wife in a fifth-grade production of A Midsummer Night's Dream and is currently working with his son on a Hamilton Harry Potter mashup called Alexander Potterton. Welcome to Foolish Voices, Daniel. How are you?
1: Thank you, uh, Scott. It's great to hear from you. Great to be on the podcast, which I love listening to.
0: Oh, good. I think maybe you're the only person who listens, so I'm really happy to have you as as an avid fan. (laughs) Um, how, How is the world at Linfield College?
1: Uh, it is a transformed world scott as i know yours is and everybody's is these days uh, all our classes are remote so i uh, hop on monday wednesdays at 2:30 with my sheer crew and they are doing an amazing job of being resilient and flexible even though we only meet each other mean just i'm i'm really impressed with them. I, and i i was thinking a student who was supposed to play Uh, The lead in Measure for Measure at Linfield this spring is going to be Isabella. In fact, your old theater company Bag and Bag uh, adaptation of Measure by Anya Pearson, and then we're going to see the Linfield show. And of course, they both had to be um, canceled or postponed. And we usually do Shakespeare performances in class, and this student, um, instead, since we couldn't be physically together, she recorded herself doing Isabella's monologue Mm. on uh, TikTok, and then, like, spliced herself together with a, a her scene partner, which was quite amazing. And I didn't know how to do it all, but looked fabulous. <laughs> then, since she wasn't going to be doing Shakespeare's play on stage, she wrote her own monologue of what she wished Isabella would say to that uh, meddlesome Duke at the end of the play, and recorded that as well for our class uh, discussion page. So there has been some some creativity. At, um, uh, strength and alternate visions, even as we're in this crazy separated mode.
0: I want to see all of those things. I want you to send <laughs> so me links to all of those things. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I was, I was really disappointed that the the sort of. Uh, Interesting opportunities for a production of Measure at Linfield and the Bag and Baggage Adaptation Measure of Innocence with Anya Pearson could have been such a great, rich conversation starter, really great opportunity to kind of talk about
1: adaptation and response to Shakespeare. I'm so bummed it didn't happen. I really wish it could have. And this is uh, I'm hoping this whole episode can be product placement for your great Shakespeare adaptation ideas because you had enlivened my class last year um, with your problem plays project, um, commissioning new uh, artists of color to rewrite Shakespeare's weird and tricky plays through cultural experience. We were doing the winter's tale in my class when Bag and Baggage was putting uh, um, Carlos uh, and Trujillo's uh, La Isla and one multicultural adaptation of oh and carlos been to our class thanks to our mutual friend melory mirish rafi yeah uh, dramaturg who will rule the world in about 10 minutes and quite rightly and, so and i'm happy about yes. it uh and and he got to tell us about his process of rewriting this play about sicily and bohemia to be about havana and Miami. then we went to see the show in the wonderful gallery uh new, new sort of um, Ali staging there and it was fab. we were looking forward to again and Anya Pearson did amazing work thinking about questions of mass incarceration uh, Representation uh, So I hope we'll get to do it down the line
0: yeah me too well thank you i um i i love that project and it was a a really delightful way for me to end my tenure at bag and baggage Mm -hmm. was to work with carlos um on that adaptation to direct it i never actually got a chance to see the full production um we got it i got it to tech and then i had to move to idaho and take over here at company of fools (laughs) so um yeah whatever the life of an uh, of a theater director right that's that's how this works
1: Cassie's doing a great job in Hillsborough and you were doing exciting work.
0: Thanks, I appreciate it. So um, you have been writing like crazy and you have been getting, you your, some of your stuff in the New Yorker and the Atlantic is some of, I have to be honest, it's some of the best writing about contemporary theater that I have read in years. And so on behalf of an avid fan base, Daniel, thank you so much for your work with uh, those incredibly important institutions and for bringing your voice uh, to to those pages.
1: Oh, thanks so Um, much, Scott. That means a lot coming from you.
0: Can I just ask how cool is it to be able to work for the New Yorker and the (laughs) New York Times? Like, how awesome is
1: that? Oh man, I, I have to say, As somebody grew up uh, in a household, we subscribed to the New Yorker. Um, I was kind of uh, crushing on that font. You know, there's that like particular typeface. Mm -hmm. And the first time I saw my name and my words in that font, it felt like um, what I imagine, you know, an actor would feel seeing their name on a marquee. It was uh, a thrill. <laughs> oh, academics! You're such weirdos.
0: I love um, that. Me. No, uh, <laughs> yes. I can I can absolutely imagine the moment where you're like, I'm going to write this thing for the New Yorker, and then I'm going to see it in that font, and just I would I would lose my mind. I think that's so amazing. <laughs> so, what is it? I what never is knew. it? The, yeah, what is it that you're sort of kind of interested in um, as a as a kind of cultural critic in this time? I mean, tell us just a little bit about. I mean, I feel like your work is thematic, although it's not per- perhaps all the same topic, but there is a mm. sort of theme running through
1: most of the work that you're you're doing for those various publications. Would you agree with that? Oh, I'm so glad it's perceptible to you because uh, I've been trying to convince the uh, promotion and tenure committee at Linfield that it should be perceptible to Just them. Tell them, them well. to call me. I'm happy to explain it to them. There we go. They've been, they've been very gracious about it. Yeah, I I I think initially, um, when I first started writing for the New Yorker, which was a, a piece about the history of messing with Shakespeare's language when the Oregon Shakespeare Festival had announced that it had hired a bunch of playwrights and dramaturgs to translate Shakespeare's plays into contemporary English. And there was this kind of nationwide uh, collective gasp and uh, a sense that like blasphemy and desecration was being committed in Ashland. Um I kind of studied the history of people Funky things, Spear, I, I think of a, a, a society in which you and I may be the only members, Scott, with particular interest in 17th and 18th century messing varieties. And, <laughs> Is that uh, true? And are so, we the only ones? <laughs> we got to hang out more uh, often. <laughs> there are, I mean, we, ha- we have wonderful around the world, it's true, mm-hmm. but maybe in Oregon, the two. And so you and I both knew that like, for most of the history of performing Shakespeare, the first thing you did was you change the language and then right. you probably changed the plot too. And so the notion that this, how, um, you know, beyond the pale, I thought could be contextualized usefully. And that's the kind of, I suppose, the academic fallacy is like people agree with me if only they knew more literary and cultural history. And I continue to <laughs> uh, promote that fallacy, I think in my pieces and try to think what interesting points in which something that we're experiencing in the culture now um, intersects or could be illuminated or enriched by an understanding of what's happened before And then I think y- you and I have both had, you know, particularly an interest in how do we expand The range of voices that can speak through Shakespeare And who could claim a kind of authority in our culture like Shakespeare exerts uh, And so that's been a, a you know particular interest as I've written about uh, Hamilton or West Side Story or alegria Agriahutiz or Taylor Mac or um, currently, working on a piece about Mary Catherine Nagel an amazing uh, oh really uh, lawyer and playwright. Uh, to see sort of who who can expand our sense of what theatrical and literary authority looks like. Are you well?
0: I mean, I ha- yes, I have a million, I have a million questions about that. But I want to, <laughs> uh, I I, I, I want to ask a specific thing, which is yeah. this: this exploration that you do about sort of really expanding ownership of and access to what what I would consider the kind of classical canon, right? Which, um, right. you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years has been the purview of the, the white and male and the elite. Um, yeah. Are you finding any sort of very present and immediate uh, echoes with our current moment? Um, in other words, are you finding yourself sort of thinking about expanding access to theater Broadly, because we're all so constrained from getting access to it now, well, does that question even make yeah, sense?
1: Right. I mean, it's certainly. And you tell me if I'm misinterpreting what you're saying, Scott. I think this has been a big concern: is will the the uh, you know the understandable financial peril that so many arts organizations are in, and the you know the need to reel subscribers back into the fold once it's safe to do so, will that lead to more? what we might think of as conservative or traditional programming. Um, and then I was, <laughs> this is a piece I'm working on for The Atlantic now, about uh, uh, looking at theater on film. And I was talking with the director of National Live, which is does these really high quality broadcasts of their performances at the National Theater on the South Bank in London. And, um, you know, historically beamed them out around the world to uh, to cinemas that can sort of download their satellite or get their feed. And now has been doing this wonderful program of uh, NT at Home, where you go on the YouTube and see James Corden in One Man, Two Governors, or um, uh, Jane Eyre was the last year they did. And uh, if if anybody still thinks that film theater isn't as good as live, they have not been subjected to my kids' reenactment of One Man, Two Governors. Really? uh, (laughs) (laughs) Too good.
0: Again, I want I need video clips of this
1: <laughs> They've actually been doing a wonderful job. You really haven't heard Australian honeymooners mills and boons <laughs> until It comes out of an 11 year old's mouth.
0: That's genius. Oh, something I love that.
1: So this is my long prelude to saying um, NT National Theatre does amazingly wonderful and inclusive programming I think that expands the range of what Britishness might look like but what they choose to beam out over their satellite to the rest of the former British Empire uh, looks a lot like the schoolboy canon of eighteen sixty two it 's yeah. uh, shakespeare it 's treasure island it 's jane Eyre, it 's it 's the classics and and understandably they want to have stuff that has wide uh appeal and will pay the costs of the uh, the the expensive fees of filming this stuff but uh at least it 's a question for me of whether uh if if we were Sort of looking at kind of streaming models, even centralized distribution models for getting culture out to the provinces from the metropole, um, whether that means a homogenization of culture and whether that means a kind of reversion to a more traditional canon as opposed to a celebration of the glorious range of voices that we now know is on the on the American stage.
0: So did you say that you ha- that is a question for you? Because... I- <coughs> <laughs> or do you, do you have an answer? You're just not willing to tell me what it is. Oh well, uh, <laughs> have you arrived at a conclusion
1: as a result of your
0: work with The Atlantic on
1: this? <laughs> uh, supposed to file my article tomorrow morning, so Great. we'll see. We'll uh, see. We'll see what comes out. But I maybe I, maybe my answer is I hope it's not going to be a, a homogenization. I um, hope so too. And I, 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 I give some of these like Broadway HD has its like Trailblazers channel f- focusing on women directors, and they helped uh, American. Cons- theater that had to curtail its run of Brandon Jacob Jenkins' play, Gloria, um, at least get filmed in some form and get online so people could see it. Uh, and and there are, you know, all these amazingly inventive kind of immersive uh, theater-on-demand things, not to mention the prospect that Mallory Mirish rafi with Huntington Theater is available to do a monologue or a song by phone. I know. Access, uh, online platforms or get somewhere in person. So there's wonderful work happening, and I, I'd like to be able to... And I guess this sort of circles back to your original question. I feel like part of what I do is try to, sh- to the extent I have a spotlight, try to shine it on people who don't get it shown on them enough, and then to kind of question where we traditionally shine it and what's being uh, uh, left in the shadows if those things get in the light.
0: Yeah, I have to tell you, Daniel, I'm terrified of that. And I, I yeah. have a, I have a deep suspicion that that we are going to be seeing a lot of Treasure Islands and Neil Simons and and Romeo's and Juliets uh, in the coming years. And it just it just breaks my heart. we've We've taken so many strides forward, and I'm absolutely panicked that we are going to see a revision a reversion back to sort of less risk, less financial risk, rest, less artistic risk in a vain attempt to try and win back audiences to the American theater. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me that I can sleep at night.
1: Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> two counter arguments, Scott, although I say I share your fear. Um, okay. One is Hamilton. The other is your work in Hillsboro, Oregon. Uh, so I, I mean, I can't imagine that if anybody was drafting a plan for a safe season uh, for a a. a a fairly rural community in the Pacific Northwest, they would come up with a bookie version of Titus Andronicus, <laughs> or a, 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 a Havana Miami version of the Winter's Tale, uh, half in Spanish, say, and did it. And I, I haven't looked at your balance sheet, so I'm not gonna ask you about that. We are okay. developed a loyal following Yeah, they seem alright. <laughs> and, um, and like Hamilton is of course, in some ways a unicorn. But other than the brand name of the founding father, it had, it had nothing built in or guaranteed about it, um, except for its dynamism and energy and freshness and government funding and the public theater and, um, and Jeffrey Sellers and the talent of the Minimal Miranda. So it does make me think maybe those things are rare, maybe you're unique as an AD and, and of course Hamilton's unique as a, but that when the, when the work happens, that our sense of risk gets reevaluated and that maybe we start to think what's risky is simply appealing to the same narrow base of subscribers and assuming they will be there in perpetuity yeah that's safer is expanding the pool of people who could be interested in and invested in the work
0: yeah all right i feel a little bit better uh just a little, <laughs> just a little <laughs> bit. Um, I mean, I'm I'm so fascinated in in this particular topic around sort of film presentations of theatrical work and 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 what we're seeing. I mean, you know, you and I sort of Facebook message back and forth a couple of times about you know the Medium article about Assembly and and sort of this this. Kind of response from some portions of our of our industry that are saying, "Stop putting your crappy Zoom stuff online. It's just <laughs> pushing people away. Nobody wants to see it." Um, you know, versus the the kind of "We have a voice. We need to be heard." I have a drive to make, um, and I'm I'm just interested in your take on that on that question of the rush to streaming for. Theaters of all sizes in all parts of the country—good, bad, indifferent. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think good. I'll I'll my claim down <laughs> and and um, the I mean the medium article had good reasons, and I I probably agree with it that like what did uh, he say Tiger is better than whatever head of gabbler you're into true, I mean better in the sense of like more smoothly produced and more immediately gripping and entertaining but I'm kind of with uh, with uh, Lauren Gunderson, America's Most Produced Playwright on this and she said that part of the beauty's work is in its imperfection and in its expectation and in its sense of well let's just see what could you, could you do a version of the Tempest where the audience on Zoom are the mariners and we go through an island and we have to Clap at the end, like, uh, like we do for Tinkerbell to release pros bands. Like, maybe that's pop, but it's a pretty low experiment. Why not try it? And I can't actually imagine this stuff is turning anybody off from theater because I don't think anybody's watching it except people who are into theater uh, already. So, insofar as it's sort of the local incubator for stuff that might develop in an interesting way, I'm for it. And then the stuff I've seen has been pretty charged for plays, Instagram and monologue, uh, asking Hollywood casting agents to let him play a Gentile was maybe the the, the four minutes of greatest delight I've had in this few uh, months. Uh, So I think that stuff is good. Now, I have learned from Broadway people and NT Live people, it is really expensive and requires a lot of talent and planning to do a high quality um, filmed version of performance event they told me something like two to four million dollars for a broadway show right. with whatever like 10 cameras and a couple of rehearsals to get the sight lines and the rights and making sure everybody is doing work is compensated for it um so i get that that might not be a scalable model but where can I, will you me in a little bit of of uh, superficial cultural history please do please please okay So we know that when Shakespeare's plays were first published uh, in the 1590s, and we'd have to get Elizabeth Tavares back on the show to tell us exactly which the first play have Shakespeare's name, maybe say Love's Labour's Lost or something in 1598, that those those, um, printed versions always said, as it was sundry times performed by the Lord Chamberlain, his men, or this man or whoever it uh, might be, which is to say, that the the printed version of the play was a memento of the performance version. It was mm-hmm. understood to be a secondary product, somewhere basically between like uh, uh, a souvenir playbill and a cast recording. And you got it because either you wanted to remember the performance or because you couldn't go to the performance, and that was the next best thing. Um, but we around saying like reading a play is going to, you know ruin live theater performance and is such a sensorily impoverished medium and can't possibly capture the ineffability of having somebody sneeze on you in the second row we just accept that like that's a different way to experience this show. maybe they'll create in performing it or help you reread a couple lines that you couldn't get in performance we were fine with that as a print for like 400 years and so i think we will come to see film versions of live shows the same way we see film versions um, the Golden State will play in the LA late, or the same way we'll film version of say uh, a concert or the same way we see a film version of the Metropolitan Opera which is to say of course it's not the same thing but if you can't be there it's great and if you can't afford a ticket or you have a different ability that prevents you from being in that space or you're geographically remote it's sure nice to have
0: yeah yes I I I think I mean, I guess there's a part of me that sort of says, "Yep, yep," just don't call it theater, right? <laughs> like, just yeah. like yeah. Tell something else, because I get all—I get my back gets up about it, and I get a little grumpy about it. But, um, but you know, I think I think one of the things you said that really sort of s- struck me is this notion of. Um, is it going to ruin people's experience of theater or whatever, because no one's watching it anyway, other than people who are already theater fans. (laughs) You know, one of the things, and I, 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 this is just me being honest with you. I I have heard multiple times over the last few weeks, people saying, if we, if we do this, we are going to expand our audience base. Mm. We are going to uh, going online and going streaming means that we can reach out to hundreds and thousands of more people who would otherwise not be interested in the Scott Palmer directed version of Miss Bennett Christmas at Pemberley done at the Liberty theater in Haley, Idaho.
1: And, Mm -hmm.
0: and I roll my eyes so hard that I think I'm going to actually sprain my eyeball that, (laughs) that I don't, I don't feel like this is a, that this is an access an accessibility and expansion of our audience base—it feels much more along the lines of just serving the the temporary needs of hungry theater goers who are just trapped in their houses for a couple of months. What do you think of that position?
1: Well, I I hear you. Um, I mean, I think it also serves the temporary needs of hungry theater makers who are true. In that is true. Their yes. house. What did uh, Kate Hamill, you know, who, who's writing her own uh, Jane Austen adaptation, whether she feels like a, a border collie without sheep, she uh, just right. trapped at home, she can start gnawing on the furniture. So I I want to applaud the right of any artist to make stuff as a way of fending off this sense of purposelessness and isolation. Why do you think I'm writing so many articles? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but if if I if we just think of like the worst quality recording of a live performance, and I'll tell you what that is. It was the um, the lower school librarian at my kid's school recording the f- opening number of Hal Alexander Potterton performed by my daughter. And I think maybe the first uh, all female and non binary to perform a version of Hamilton. In a nice. That I couldn't attend because I was at a faculty meeting. And thank goodness for this librarian who who put it on her cell phone and then emailed it to me so I could share it with the grandparents the next day. Like, of course we know on the smallest level, this totally increases access for people who can't be there. And I see these other recordings as kind of continuous with the, um, you know, the family sharing video of the local performance. Um, now that's a different thing, it's a lower cost than Broadway HD, but the HD folks told me that the shows that get licensed most often for distribution around the country are the shows that have a, what they call a digital asset. So that's either a recording of the film or a cast album that you can hmm. stream. And you know that's a sort of different scale. That's commercial theater. but, uh, I don't know. How can it hurt unless it's like draining resources away from other stuff that you need or time you need? What's the downside?
0: yeah, I mean, i don't I don't know, actually. I mean, I think the downside for me is energy, time, commitment availability of resources from my staff, right? Like yeah. there there are some downsides, I think, just in terms, like, you know, I'm instead of going and being like, ooh, I think I'll do a major adaptation of, um, you know, Coriolanus, which feels like a, a perfect opportunity to talk about the, you know, the people demanding access to their their corn, right? right. Like this is a perfect right. time to totally. do a, a Coriolanus adaptation uh, in these moments of the federal government stealing our masks and and yeah. offering to give us our money back for a short period of time. Um, you know, I I could I could quite easily imagine myself spending the next couple of weeks trying to figure out an adaptation of Coriolanus, which we would desperately try and figure out how to do online. Um, I don't know. I guess my the the thing that I ultimately come down to is, I'm only going to be delivering that to fans of Company of Fools as it is. They're the only ones who are really going to be interested in that. Uh, they're the only ones I can really get access to because I don't have a big giant budget that I can use to you know market this amazing new Zoom based adaptation of Coriolanus for the general public. Um, and I, and I don't know that it's going to, I don't know that I'm suddenly going to find a huge new crop of, of patrons who are going to be interested in coming to see the work at the Fools. I just don't, I, as I say, I don't know. And so I'm hesitant to put in the effort.
1: I hear that. And if we got Bannon's version of Coriolanus, we need Scott Palmer's version of Coriolanus. <laughs> and if it's, I mean, you say it would only read the Fools um, supporters, but like who else do you want to reach if you if you dive on your stage? It would only reach a company full of supporters and that's who you want it to uh, Reach, um, so it's not to say that you could actually do this and it would be um, Worth your while, but I, I would think that would be a huge success if you could do something that would keep your and your patron curious folks your patron adjacent folks uh, Engaged and interested I would I would see your one man version of Coriolanus well, wow. uh, and I I will pay you uh, between $10 to $12 for that privilege.
0: <laughs> if you can gather four more people interested
1: in that. I mean, I mean that's okay, more money than I've seen pool. in a long time. <laughs> yeah, we're not spending money on gas. I've I mean, i I've been thinking back about the, this is a slightly different scale at which than the one in which you're asking now, Scott. And it doesn't solve your problem. But um, a couple of years ago, the Royal Shakespeare Company had invited me out to to Stratford to write about a new digital high tech production they did of *The Tempest*, mm-hmm. and it was in partnership with Intel, our local Oregon computer chip manufacturer. So there was they, that's how they got a hold of me, and um, they they were they outfitted Ariel, the actor playing Ariel, in a motion capture suit like uh like you know andy circus playing Gollum in, in mm-hmm. Lord of the rings and then the goal was live on stage ariel would move uh their body and their movements would be in real time translated from those motion capture sensors through intel processors into all the different incarnations of spirits that ariel performs on stage and you get to see the harpy and the the saint elmo's fire and uh and the uh, um, insubstantial pageant faded being sort of conjured magically uh, through your uh, it, in front of your eyes. And I thought, well, this sounds cool. And the Tempest is all about kind of the limitations of being human and non-human and um, this, I, I want to write about this. So I learned all about the tech stuff and I went up to Stratford and I saw it. And it was um, like the servers came through. The stuff looked basically like PowerPoint clip art. And they'd spent so much time on just getting the tech to work that they, I think they had forgotten that they basically were telling a story of the Tempest out of the 1950s. And it was like this unapologetic white savior, uh, narrative that I found almost embarrassing to watch. And I wrote this for the New Yorker and now I think, Daniel, what a schmuck you were here. These (laughs) folks were trying out something new and they were experimenting. You're a jerk. (laughs) I mean, my sister told me this at the time, but I didn't believe her. Right. Uh, and, Instead of just lambasting what this wasn't doing and what they were forgetting about I think I should have suggested well Here's what did here's what did open up? um, In seeing this possibility or here's what this kind of possibility could create uh, Down the line when people have the time and imagination to harness it to a story. That's that's worth telling Um, So I'm just working out my own psychodrama in response to your questions. That's fine. That's
0: what I'm here for uh, you owe me another $12 though. In addition to the one man, Corey Linus, my, my, uh, okay. my psychotherapy rates are also $12. Per I want the full 50 minutes. It's <laughs> a full 15. Uh, yeah. You know, I think one of the things that I find really fascinating and that I'm interested in having your thoughts on is what happens to an industry like ours when we are an industry that is so kind of risk-welcoming, right? Like, we always want to do something new and and do it a different way and find new ways of telling these stories. What happens when a, an industry like ours, which is kind of quite willing to take risks, is, mm-hmm. par- is abjectly paralyzed by fear, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we are all so scared of what is going to happen, and will they come back? Will we... Will we be able to have them back in our theaters? I mean, I had a conversation with my team this morning where I actually sent my technical director into the theater, a 260 seat proscenium space and asked him to measure how many seats could we get if we are required to have six feet of distance between every theater goer. And and the follow-up question to that is if we have to get six feet of distance from every theater goer, Will they even come? Will they just say, this is not, I'm not interested. You know, we're, we're so impacted by the
1: paralysis of the future. Um, so now it's, now it's your are turn you, to make me feel kidding, better. Scott? If I could see a play where I was guaranteed that there would be at least six feet between me and every other patron, that would become my dream. I theater. know, but you're funny that way. Not everybody
0: <laughs> not everybody wants That's their why theater people at pay a pay for distance.
1: first class. I <laughs> no, I think we, we fetishize the audience response. And of course, there's nothing more thrilling than the collective gasp or the collective laugh. Most of the time, people go to see the theater, despite the fact that they're gonna be sitting cheek by jowl with somebody right next to them who's gonna be, you know, wriggling and gasping and, and coughing. Um, but but I'm being I'm being cheeky here I I I totally appreciate that, that fear and I'm thinking like here does does historical consolation really help yes Shakespeare's theater was closed more often than it was open from 1603 to 1613 say um you Know half the year was always closed because of the plague, and yet people came back, but they didn't have Netflix, right? And it was, you know, it was that or bear baiting, so you were going to be rubbing up against somebody's body. You could do both,
0: you no can do both what. in a day, Daniel. You could do both in a day, <laughs> that's true. Bear baiting in the afternoon, yep,
1: <clears throat> right? So maybe, maybe that constellation isn't the constellation there, but um, th- well, this doesn't solve your problem as AD of a theater company, but I guess I'm wondering. Like, how invested do we need to be in theater's uniqueness as a storytelling and as an art form, Hmm. as opposed to seeing it as, as, you know, one among sister arts say, we know many wonderful actors go back and forth between film and TV and theater. Writers go back and forth between forms as directors, as do audiences. Um, Do we need to be that defensive about it? Or should we start seeing... I mean, or if we do, to should we should we deem fear in the in the context of different media, or should we be seeing it? Is it too aspirational or pretentious or um, sententious to see it as in, in in relation to other forms of ritual, and think, okay, what's happening to spirit practice, say, in this day? How I have mean, I'm gone to my first Zoom seder last week. Mm. Um, Thinking about uh, thinking about how how to mourn my grandma who passed away in January, sort of just, and we were planning to get together to do so. Can we do that remotely? Um, so, the emotional need and the cultural need that theater fills, and how could that be provided uh, in a different platform?
0: Yeah, I mean, it always it it just brings me back to this question of money, right? Like, I I have been. My last few nights have been spent with me waking up at two in the morning, going, "Oh, the the institution, the sort of capitalist machinery of nonprofit theater is the problem, right? Like this is like." Mm-hmm. Uh, and then immediately, five seconds later, after I've decided to overthrow the capitalist sort of systems of nonprofit theater, I immediately go well. I'm going to have to pay my mortgage, and I really want to keep my staff on salary, so maybe we shouldn't throw that particular baby out with the expensive bathwater. Um, are you finding are you finding yourself wondering about the basic assumptions upon which nonprofit theater is based in this country? You bet. You bet.
1: And I mean, I acknowledge, I'm speculating about your problems as I have a salary at a, at a college that is- Hey, I'm still For the paid. time being. Yeah, operating. for now, I'm, I think
0: we're both okay for now.
1: <laughs> right, right, absolutely. And that's where I where I feel also tremendously guilty at having kind of helped to fuel this whole Shakespeare wrote King Lear during a plague. So what? why are you wasting your time? Because of course, Shakespeare's company was only able to do this because they were government sponsored and they had the right. bailing them out. When the box office was closed, and being under King James's thumb is is not something I would wish for anybody, um even if it came with some money attached. Right. So <laughs> it's, uh depends it's,
0: on how big the check has to be. On it, I have to be the, honest. I mean, yeah, it's right. <laughs>
1: it could it come could come at the expense of your head, right? As well, but yeah, I mean, I think we like haven't we all had that fantasy that uh, America will get on board with European countries not only in like healthcare or childcare, but also in support for the arts too um yes absolutely and i don't i don't know how long this sort of the the, you know the cocktail of ticket sales donors grants and corporate is going to work but you're i I mean i don't know latent in your question scott but if you're saying if you're, you're sort of waiting for bernie sanders to be elected before you figure out your model for next season's finances you're probably right you'll have to figure it out before then
0: yeah yeah i'm working on it i don't know what we're going to do <laughs> i mean i'm i'm absolutely horrified at the at the rumors that are sort of swirling around the entirety of american theater which says mm, we're probably now going to have to fire all the production staff uh, who are very expensive because we keep them on staff even when they're not building things, and we also pay their health insurance. And we're gonna just go back to hiring them as seasonal workers. right? Because you can save you can save thirty percent of your budget by just hiring designers and stage managers and you know all those all those remarkably gifted but but very, and I'm doing super heavy air quotes, kind of dispensable artists that that aren't on stage. Um, you know, that that is a thing that people are talking about consistently and loudly as a as a reasonable alteration to the economic model of American theater.
1: Man, well, this and this is the problem, too, that's bigger than American theater of having health care that uh, employer dependent and our model that you can only you only know, get government assistance once you file for un- insurance as opposed to. least what i mean i think britain is doing is just having government salaries you don't have to fire everybody um to do it yeah that is an alarming an alarming prospect i mean what would it take to return to a company model a repertory model where you really have a a stable year-round cohort of artists on staff with salary in a place in the city. um I mean like, yeah it's,
0: I think it's a really good question and it's it's a it's an exercise that we explored at Bag and Baggage for a number of years with a president uh-huh. company and an associate company and and uh we were unable to find a, a way to make that affordable I mean it was just simply not going to be possible to have let's just let's just call it a small ensemble of rep uh, you know sort of rep structure of a a director who was also a marketing manager who was also a fundraiser and executive director who was also a facilities manager, you know, like asking the artists to all be social media managers as well as possibly painting the sets, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's, there's a universe in which that works, but there is not a universe that I have been able to uncover in which you can afford to triple your triple, probably more triple your, um, You know, your staffing costs in order to be able to sustain the livelihoods of 10 artists working year round. Uh, You can't produce enough theater to do that, and you can't raise enough money while you're producing that amount of theater, and no one's willing to give you the money. Um, You know, people will give you $5,000 to sponsor a show, but they won't give you $150,000 to sponsor two and a half actors for a year.
1: Yeah. T-shirts don't cover the... They don't.
0: I mean, they're good to give to the actors when they're, you know, living under a bridge. But, uh, yeah. but, but,
1: eat. right.
0: I mean, it's I, I. This is a. I mean, this is an eternal question for me, Daniel, because I am, you know, my training as a director was in Scotland in an English rep model, right? Mm-hmm. Like that mm-hmm. was my training as a director, and I do not like working with actors I don't know. I don't yeah. like working with anyone I don't know. I want to gather a, <laughs> a stable of artists who speak my language. Who we learn together. We train together. We challenge each other, and we do that over and over and over again until we're perfect at it and then we all vanish in in a flash of holy golden light.
1: Um, (laughs) Leaving that a wreck behind.
0: Exactly. That's God. I wish that was the thing that would happen to me. Um, But but I, that is not, I mean, you know, just all you have to do is look at Steppenwolf, right? How'd it work out for them? Not so great. <laughs> they, they, that model started off one of the most important companies in American theatrical history. And, and you read the books about it and you hear the stories and it was an absolute nightmare. Um, and they're still, they're not that ensemble based rep company anymore.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so I don't know. I think it's a, well, do you know the answer, and you're just trying to lead me there?
1: Uh, yes, I do. It's, it's B. I'll give you the multiple okay. choice later. Well, now, so now you're making me question my assumptions, Scott, because i, I got to go to the board of trustees at my college in a week and tell them that even though everybody wants to be a business or accounting major, they should really be taking theater and literature classes to expand their imagination and enrich their soul and make them better citizens and community members. But now you're making me think I should really be going to my theater and literature students and saying, take a couple of those econ classes before you graduate, because that's what you're going to need to make your ideas float. I, God forbid I tell you how to teach your classes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I I can imagine, Here, here's what I hope, here's what I hope happens well I, this is going to sound callous i i my suspicion is that we are going to see the loss of some major institutions who simply did not have the foresight to have enough money in the bank to weather 3 to 4 months or even 8 to 12 months of 90% drop in ticket sales mm-hmm. so we're we're going to we're going to see some of the big ships of american theater just go meh can't make it no one's going to throw us 10 million dollars to dig us out of this hole what I hope is that that it, that inspires and encourages the scrappy, the the folks who start off as a rep, ten friends in a bar going, let's put on a show in the old barn. Um, that that we we start to see those flexible, uh, insightful edgy kind of bendy theater companies with, with, that have budgets that can sustain this kind of downturn that we begin to reinvest in those scrappy, thoughtful, inventive, uh, not big budget, giant, spend spend a million dollars on a set kinds of companies. Because those are the, the folks that I think are really gonna find a way through this that merge both the online sort of streaming Technology with the demands of a of a changed audience demographic and audience uh, appetite. Um, so, if I were in your classroom talking to your students in theater, I would mm-hmm. say, learn how to be an animator. Learn how to how to how to do online marketing. Learn how to be a fundraiser as a as an additional t- set of tools that you can bring to the table for an industry that has been rocked and that that we're not a hundred percent sure is ever gonna be the same again. Right. The more, the more tools you bring to the the table in the next eight months, I think the more likely
1: you are to succeed. I love it Scott you have become a know. capitalist apostle for creative destruction we are going to see the the phoenix die but from the ashes new little uh, I don't know the name for little baby phoenixes are going to rise pheni I don't know <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> But I they think are. that makes total sense it just you you know if you're an actor you could also sew costumes you're better off and now if you can also you know, run a website or come up with a marketing plan you can too <clears throat> and I think I was talking with a, an AD the other day who said I'm sure a conversation you've had as well like What's gonna survive? Maybe these same institutions won't survive. Um, maybe these same artists aren't gonna be the same ones doing this professionally, but maybe the medium will be altered too. But but we might think about what it is that we most need to preserve, whether that's the building, or that's the name of the company, or that's the craft that could happen in a different place. And I say to somebody who loves theatrical institutions, I love being on the bricks in Ashland, and I love being in the Arts Hub at Artist Rep in Portland, um, but if if a result is as you say, this kind of uh, young, scrappy, and hungry model, or and needn't be mutually exclusive, but ways of bringing um, the 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 craft of storytelling and ensemble building and imagination that we love in partnership with schools, with prisons, with community organizations, with public spaces, um, places that do things on smaller budgets, but in some ways for bigger audiences. Uh, That that seems like like something that feels like a pretty good outcome. And I'm thinking, like thinking of what you probably know more than I about the history of poor theater as an aesthetic, um, but of course related to a an economic model. And I wouldn't wish this on anybody. But the theater that I love most is. You know, a cardboard box and a sheet. This was the best thing about the NT Live Jane Eyre. It started out with this little bundle of baby Jane that was passed around to all these uncaring tips. And then her most uncaring aunt, uh, Mrs. Reed, shook out the bundle and we're like, oh my God, they're killing the baby. And it became the dress. Oh, they I love that. Playing Jane Eyre mm. put on. And you could do that yeah. anywhere. Can you distribute it? You actually can. Um, maybe, maybe we get a little bit away from Miss Saigon helicopters and back to those uh, cardboard boxes. Yeah,
0: I, I was, I was having a conversation. I've been, I've been having regular Saturday, uh, happy hours with my friends from Glasgow in Scotland, where uh-huh. with Bard the Botanics and Glasgow rep, the theater company I ran in Glasgow. And, and we were telling a story the other day about, we did a production of Henry V, uh, a promenade show in the Botanic Gardens. And we literally had uh, a couple of our stagehands um, go up on a bridge about, I don't know, a quarter of a mile away from the Botanic Gardens and and we texted them and they threw dummies over the bridge that had been hung. And the dummies were basically made out of garbage bags and old t-shirts and they, but they were so far away, so they were so far away, you couldn't tell that they weren't human beings, but they, it was such a, it was such a cheap and cheerful and easy, shocking moment that Mm. people still to this day, I have people, that was 20 years ago we did that. I still to this day have people say to me, oh, the moment they threw those bodies over the bridge, it was one of the most amazing experiences of my theatrical life. Mm -hmm. We had no lights, we had no sound, we, we, we barely had costumes, but what we did have, were two fake human bodies made out of garbage bags and T-shirts that we were able to throw over the side of a bridge, and and people still kind of think back to that moment as being one of the most memorable theatrical experiences of their lives. Um, I I miss those days of of trying to figure out we don't have money for back projections, we don't have money for you know di- digital mapping, and <clears throat> we don't we don't have money for a smoke machine.
1: Uh, how are we going to do it anyway? Right. I love that. I got, I wish I could have seen that production. And what more perfect play than Henry V that begins by wishing for a kingdom for a stage yeah. princess <clears> to <throat> act, but, uh, you know, apologizes for not having any of that. Yeah. Stuff. It was great fun. Yeah. It was really fun. And this um, is, yeah. that's. The, it seems like that. It's not as though maybe saving money on set design will pay the living wage for your actors necessarily, but this has always been a debate, you know, going back. Think about those 19th century productions of, of that play, Henry V, that thought, well, okay, clearly Shakespeare wished he did have. Right, um, so let's give him could, one. <laughs> right, so let's get 500 uh, soldiers on stage yeah. and Henry V will ride in on a white horse right. and it'll take half an hour to change every set because right. you're, you're putting all of Agincourt on there. And you get then the reaction against that with William Pohl and others at the end right. of the 19th century saying, no, Elizabethan stage is blank. There is nothing on it. Uh, it's costumes and language. And uh, maybe, maybe we're in for a new neo-Elizabethan revival. Uh, I, I will, I will be at
0: the head of that.
1: Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> no, I wouldn't
0: mind. I, I do. One of my favorite shows I ever directed was a production of Much Ado About Nothing down mm-hmm. at the uh, down at Oregon State, and we had sixty extras um, doing big, giant dance numbers. It was like a Broadway show. We drove people in in, in World War II era jeeps the first couple of weeks wow. we had literally had a biplane fly over the quad at Oregon state um like we had air, we had an airplane in the show for the first two weeks it was it was ridiculous and once <laughs> that production was done i was like yep never going to have to do that again right <laughs> to sort of have a little bit of that excess as a director is fun uh uh-huh. but but honestly i mean it, i just became i just became a you know, moving chess pieces around a board. It wasn't about the art. It was about the spectacle, um, which I, you know, I think this moment speaks to us about the, the, the absolute unapologetic need for human connection over all else, right? It, it, we don't need costumes. We don't need back projectors. We, we just want to feel connected to stories. Um, and that brings me a lot of hope. Uh, that we can that we can jettison some of our industrial baggage uh, that we've just been forced to to adhere to because other people do it and get back to the work of storytelling.
1: Mm. You think how many people absolutely are turning in to listen to Patrick Stewart read a sonnet a day, day on Twitter? Now, Patrick Stewart, if he were reading his grocery list, they would yeah. tune in to read it, and it would be extraordinary. But um, there is that simplicity of that, yeah. uh, a person, a voice, and poetry that yeah. makes magic. I like that. It's sort of why I got into this whole thing in the first place, really. Was that, I don't quite know your origin story.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was it was because I loved how weird Shakespeare sounded. And I didn't uh-huh. understand, you know, when I was a junior in high school, I had no idea what any of it meant. And that pissed me off. So I had to figure it out. Um, yeah. So I started, I started shop, shoplifting copies of Shakespeare from the Hillsborough Public Library because I didn't want anyone to know <laughs> that I was reading it. I was embarrassed about it. And then I just became obsessed. And wow. the
1: rest, as they say, is
0: tragic theatrical history.
1: Okay, <laughs> so, I, I'm donating my $12 to the Hillsborough Library. It's, they it's already like have my money. money.
0: I gave them the book back and a complete collection of the, the works of Shakespeare. So... <gasps> Oh, I love it. I need that twelve dollars, Daniel. I need <laughs> okay. you to send it to All me. All right. So, uh, you know what? I could honestly go on talking with you for hours and hours and hours. And I hope that, um, I hope that you will agree to eventually come back. I can't wait to read uh, the Atlantic stuff you're working on. I think that sounds great. <laughs> uh, I think you've just goes written it for me, Scott. Uh, I'm grateful well as long as I get credit for it in print. I also would like to see my name in the New Yorker, Daniel. I mean, uh, my name is Scott Palmer. I'm the producing artistic director of Company of Fools. And uh, we have had the great pleasure of talking with the super smart and super charming Daniel Pollock pelsner Daniel is the Ronnie, the crew chair in Shakespeare Studies at Linfield College in Oregon. He has been writing a bunch of really cool stuff in some of the coolest publications on the planet, including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. He is the scholar-in-residence at the Portland Shakespeare Project, and I think he's really, really super smart. Thank you so much for joining us for Foolish Voices, Daniel. I appreciate it so much.
1: My pleasure, Scott. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Will you stay in touch and let me know know how you're doing and all of that, And, and will you also let me know how your discussion with the trustees go? How that goes? I
1: sure will. I'm going to send them your way and we will have Great. to get a joint byline online soon.
0: On it. Love it. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. I appreciate your time.